Well, as I mentioned last week, we are in the midst of a brief uh, three-week sermon series looking at the purpose and the practice of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Last week, we asked the question, what is a church? This week, we're going to ask the question, what is the Lord's Supper? And uh, then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how does a church practice the Lord's Supper? So once we know what a church is, once we know what the Lord's Supper is, then we can uh, discern how a church practices the Lord's Supper. And so our passage today is John chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 35 to 39. And that's John chapter 6, verses 35 to 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus declared... I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, like I said, we answered the question, what is the true church? And we said that members of a true church believe the same truths 
and then live lives that flow out of those truths. Their beliefs and their behavior, their life and their doctrine are the same. We are then able to recognize a true church because a true church will preach the pure gospel, which means every Sunday they proclaim the truths of the scripture and how someone who believes those truths will respond to them. The beliefs and the behaviors of a true church are taught by a true church through the pure preaching of the gospel. And then we learned that we can also recognize a true church because a true church will practice church discipline, which means that they, as a community, will actually hold each other accountable to those beliefs and to the behaviors that flow out of those beliefs. And then we said there's one more way to recognize the true church, and that is through um, the church properly administering the sacraments. So there are two sacraments that our Lord Jesus has given to the church uh, by command, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So here's the question. It's easy to see how preaching helps us uh, recognize a true church, because preaching really does shape belief and behavior through the teaching ministry. It's easy to see how church discipline helps us shape uh, or helps us recognize a true church. Because when we hold each other accountable, we really do help shape belief and behavior. But how does the sacraments help us recognize a true church? How does pouring water on a baby or immersing somebody in water help us recognize a true church? How does some people gathering together and eating some bread and drinking some wine together uh, contribute at all to uh, helping us recognize a true church? Let me, uh, let me answer that question by asking another question. If you see somebody and they have a ring on the ring finger of their left hand, what do you automatically know about that person? They're married, right? I remember when I was in my early 20s, I learned how to do the ring check. <laughs> right? You meet somebody and you think to yourself, hey, this person's attractive. You look down, up, oh, they got a ring on. That means they are automatically uh, off your list of potential dating partners. Uh, another sign, if you, if you see somebody and they, uh, they touch their uh, forehead and then their chest and then go from shoulder to shoulder, what do you automatically know about that person? They're a Roman Catholic. This is somebody who believes that the Pope in Rome is the vicar of Christ on earth, right? Simply by them moving their hands in a certain way. There are many other uh, signs in society. If you, like for example, an atheist would never have a fish bumper sticker. Unless, of course, it was like a mutated fish eating that fish, right? We've all seen that bumper sticker. Uh, if you see a Star of David bumper sticker, what do you know about that person? They're probably Jewish. If you see somebody walking around with a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt are the Greek letters Alpha, Chi, Omega, what do you know about that person? They're part of a fraternity. You see, our society has all kinds of signs and symbols that tell us what people believe, how they live their life, and who they are associated with. And that's exactly what the sacraments do. The sacraments are signs and symbols that point us to what we, point to what we believe, who we're associated with, 
in how we live our lives. So when Christians gather together in a visible local congregation at a certain time, at a certain place, and when they hear God's word preached, when they baptize someone, when they eat the bread and the wine together, those sacraments, they point to the reality that this is a group of people who believe the truths of the pure gospel, and this is a group of people who have committed to hold each other accountable to those beliefs and to the behaviors that flow from those beliefs. And we call this community a covenant community. Now remember, a covenant is, a, uh, is an agreement that is built on promises, okay? And the reason we call this community a covenant community is because this community is formed and shaped by God's covenant of grace. The truths that we believe are the promises that he gives to us in his covenant of grace. That he will deliver us from our sin through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we are his people. And that he is our God. Simply because we trust the promises that he gives to us in Christ. And we believe that since we are part of this covenant, we are obligated to die to our sin and to live for Christ, not as a condition of entering into the covenant, but as a consequence of having been given his mercy and his grace simply by faith. And so baptism then, uh, we got to talk briefly about baptism and, and how it's different than the Lord's Supper before we can get into the Lord's Supper. So baptism as a sign of entrance into the covenant community, okay? So baptism happens once. It's given to people as they are brought into the church. Uh, And there are two ways of being brought into the church through baptism. The first way would be if you are uh, a teenager or an adult, you've never been part of the church, you hear the gospel for the very first time, and you realize that, that Jesus died for me. Right? That, that, that through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, God has loved me personally. And then, and then you're convicted of your sin, and you realize that, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. And so what happens is you are baptized, you are brought into the church, and then you uh, proclaim that Jesus is Lord within the church. Okay? The other way of entering the covenant community is by being born into it. So over and over again throughout Scripture, God tells us that He is our God and that His promises are not only for us, but they are also for our children. And so because of that, we give the covenant sign of baptism to our children. Now, admittedly, there's a bit of a mystery here because uh, at some point, our children will need to actually receive those promises for themselves personally. Uh, Because no one is saved by their baptism. Every single person uh, who is a true believer is saved by faith and faith alone. But because of the fact that through baptism they are part of the covenant community, they will have the massive benefit of growing up in a place where the pure preaching of the gospel is heard every week. They will have the benefit of growing up in a community where we are holding each other accountable for those beliefs and for the behaviors that flow from those beliefs. And because of God's promises to them, we will raise them fully expecting that one day they really will truly receive those promises for themselves by faith. Okay? So, if baptism is the covenant sign of entrance into this community 
then the Lord's Supper is the covenant sign of participation in the community. Baptism happens once. It marks our entrance into the covenant community. The Lord's Supper happens often, and it is the sign that marks those who are active in the community. Baptism is given to members of the covenant community, but the Lord's Supper is actively received by members of the covenant community. So, think of baptism as the sign of initiation into the community that believes the truths of the gospel and that lives a life that flows from those truths. And then the Lord's Supper is the sign pointing to the fact that we have received those promises by faith. It is the sign that actually symbolizes our faith in Christ. Okay? That was a long introduction. We haven't even got to our text yet. But what I want to do now is I want to just state very plainly what I want to show us from the text. So if, if you were tuning out before this and you plan to tune out after this and you only hear one thing this morning, just hear the thing that I'm about to say right now. Okay? So... In baptism, God makes promises to us. And because God is the one who is active in baptism, it is possible for somebody to undergo baptism before they have faith. Because all you do in baptism is passively receive God's promises. Okay? But the Lord's Supper is an act of faith. We are served the Lord's Supper, but we as individual Christians, we reach out, we take the bread, we take the wine, and we partake of the meal. Someone else baptizes us, but we eat the Lord's Supper. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in our passage this morning, in John 6, we will see very clearly that the Lord's Supper is a sign of our own individual personal faith. You can be baptized apart from faith, right? Um, because baptism, baptism points to the faith that you will have. But you must partake of the Lord's Supper with faith because it points to the faith that you do have. Are you with me? Okay. So in John chapter 6, this is a powerful passage filled with much deep theology Back at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 4, uh, which we did not read, John tells us almost as an aside, he says, the Jewish Passover festival was near. And so then as the events and the teaching of this passage unfold, we actually see that this is a very important piece of information. Uh, because first thing that happens in John chapter 6 is Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fishes, very miraculously. Um, and then... Uh, he, and in so doing, he demonstrates that he is the same God who rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt during the very first Passover meal, and he is the very same God who sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? Then Jesus' disciples, uh, they leave and they go to the other side of the lake. Jesus catches up later in the middle of the night by, you know, walking on water, no big deal. Uh, the crowd wakes up the next morning, and they look around, and only one boat is missing, and they know that the, the um, disciples left before Jesus, and so they wonder, where did Jesus go? And so they go searching for him, and they find him on the other side of, of uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. And they get into this conversation with him. 
And then in the back and forth conversation between Jesus and the crowd, we begin to learn more and more about Jesus. And in that conversation, Jesus gathers up the fact that the Passover is near and the fact that he has just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. And he tells them that the real bread of God is not the manna that Moses gave their fathers in the wilderness. No, Jesus tells them that the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Which, of course, sounds really great to this crowd, because the day before, he had just fed them miraculously with bread, and they think to themselves, well, hey, I would like to be fed miraculously with bread every single day for the rest of my life. And so they say to him, sir, always give us this bread. And this is where our passage picks up, because Jesus' response to this request is to say, I am the bread of life which is a really strange thing to say. Because what does that even mean? How is Jesus the bread of life? But Jesus is doing so much here. He's, he's sweeping up into himself the Passover meal because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's sweeping up into himself the manna that God gave to Israel in the wilderness to sustain them every day for 40 years because he is the one who sustains true life. And then right after he tells the crowd that he is the bread of life, he begins to unpack what that means. He says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so right away, Jesus tells us what it means that he is the bread of life to be nourished by him as we are nourished by bread, we simply come to him. To believe in him is to have our spiritual thirst satisfied. And then later he says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So if Jesus is the bread of life, then to have the kind of life that he offers in himself, all we must do is look to him and believe in him. And when we do, he promises to give us eternal life and to raise us up on the last day. Now, of course, this crowd knows Jesus because this is taking place in Galilee where Jesus grew up. And here he's claiming things about himself that are supernatural and divine. And so the crowd says, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And then after this, Jesus goes on to explain their unbelief by the fact that God has not opened their eyes to see who he really is. They still see him as the ordinary guy that they grew up with, even though he just fed 5,000 people miraculously with a few loaves and a few fishes. And then Jesus goes on to say, very truly, yeah, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. And what he means by that is, as great as it was that your ancestors were fed by God every day in the wilderness, as great and a powerful of a sign as that was of God's uh, provision and his love for you, Jesus is saying, my provision is better. My, what I have to offer you is even better. Because don't forget, your fathers ate that manna, but they died. And then he goes on and he says, But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, 
which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, so everything Jesus has said up till now is very deep, very profound. But then he says some strange things here. He starts to make it sound like you have to actually eat him, which is insane. But let's not forget that John has told us that the Passover meal was near. And in the Passover, not only did Jews remember the blood of the lamb that went on the doorpost of their homes to protect them from the judgment of God, but the Jews ate the very same lamb where that blood came from. And so Jesus is tying all these images together, but the crowd doesn't understand, and so they have no idea what to do with what Jesus just said. And so they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus goes on to clear it up for them by saying this, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now, as strange as this sounds, we cannot get too wrapped up in what Jesus is literally saying. Jesus is not advocating cannibalism here. All we have to do is look back at what he has just said previously, and we will know exactly what he means when he says this now. He has just said that if you come to him, you will never go hungry, which means in coming to him, we eat his flesh. He has just said that if you believe in him, you will never thirst, which means believing in him is drinking his blood. Earlier he said that the one who believes in me has eternal life, and here he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. So in an ultimate sense, when we simply believe in Jesus, when we know that his death is our death and his life is our life, when we trust his promises to forgive us and to transform us and to raise us up on the last day, and when we look to him as our only hope and our only deliverer from sin and from death, In that simple act of faith, we are eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Which means that John chapter 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. No, as one commentator put it, the Lord's Supper is about John chapter 6. Let me say that again. This whole passage is not about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is about this passage. The Lord's Supper is a visible, tangible picture of what Jesus is saying here. Remember, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the last Passover meal, when he was with his disciples, before he went to the cross, he took bread and he said this. He said, this is my body given to you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the Lord's Supper is a visible sign where we eat bread that Jesus said is his body and we drink the cup that Jesus said is his blood because it is a visible sign pointing to the reality of faith where our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst are satisfied. The Lord's Supper is a visible picture of the theology that Jesus is teaching in this passage because to eat his flesh, to drink his blood is to believe in him. Therefore, 
to eat the visible sign that represents his flesh and his blood means that you believe in him. Are you with me? Okay. But not only is this a sign pointing to our faith, it actually seals the promises of the gospel to us. Uh, During the time of the New Testament, if a king or a governor wanted to send a letter uh, and they wanted the recipient to know that that letter came from them, they would seal the letter with hot wax and then they would imprint that letter with what's called a signet ring, which had a, a unique symbol on it that was recognizable as belonging to the person who, uh, who imprinted the racks with that ring. And as long as that letter arrived sealed with the imprint of the signet ring of the person who sent it, then the person receiving that letter would know that it is authentic. And that's what it means that the Lord's Supper is sealed to us. It's the same idea. It seals or authenticates God's promise to us because it has the symbol of what Jesus has done for us in it. Just like the wax imprint on the letter pictures the signet ring of the one who sent it, the Lord's Supper pictures the gospel because it represents to our senses and to our soul the body and the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross. As we just read in Luke, uh, it is the new covenant in his blood. And the promises of the new covenant are this. This is Jeremiah 31. God says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the good news that we believe when we are partaking of this meal. This is the good news that this meal is assuring us of and sealing and authenticating to our souls. That God's law is now written on our hearts, which means we have new affections, which means we desire to keep his commandments. We, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he will actually cause us by his spirit to keep his commandments as a heartfelt response to his grace, that we are his people, that he is our God, and that all of our sins are forgiven. Now, you remember how the crowd struggled to believe uh, that Jesus was uh, this divine figure. Uh, They kept seeing him as just an ordinary carpenter. Uh, They knew Joseph and Mary, so how could Jesus be the bread that came down from heaven? But through the eyes of faith, Jesus is the bread of life, the Savior of the world, and the one who grants eternal life to everyone who believes in him. And it's the same thing when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Here you have this ordinary piece of bread and this ordinary wine. But united with faith, these become the body and the blood of Jesus. And they, and they are a sign that we believe that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And then they seal those promises to our soul. So, so I don't know about you, but, but one of the things I fear is, is that my faith would just dissipate and fade. I have days where, where sometimes I think to myself, I could stop believing this. I could get sucked up by something of the world. And by eating this meal, Jesus sustains my faith. He, he takes these promises and he drives them deep into my soul. 
And not every time do I partake of the meal and, and feel it happening. I don't, I don't necessarily feel him driving these promises deep into my soul, but it's, but it's a meal. And just like actual food, it nourishes our body every day so that we might get through this life. This nourishes our spiritual life. Really, truly. Um, and the other thing this meal does, and I kind of alluded to that just now, is it, is it feeds us spiritually. It nourishes and strengthens our faith. Remember, Jesus said, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And that's because, as he says later, his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink. So this meal feeds us with the spiritual nutrients we need to believe. Isn't that amazing? The writer of the Hebrews, speaking about the sacraments, says that those who partake of the sacraments are those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. So the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, we taste the word of God and we taste the powers of the age to come. We are literally being fed from heaven. Now at this point, I want to go back and I want to repeat what I said I wanted us to know from John 6 today. I want us to see that the Lord's Supper is an act of faith. We are served the Lord's Supper, but we as individual Christians, we reach out and take the bread, we take the wine, and we partake of the meal because eating this meal is proclaiming his death. And when we eat the bread and the wine, which Jesus says are his body and his blood, it is a sign and a seal of the faith we already have. And it is a meal that strengthens and sustains and nourishes our faith. But it does one more thing that I want to point out this morning. It unites us together as a community. As we have seen, the bread and the wine are meant to picture the body of Christ, right? His, his bread is the body, uh, the bread is his body, the wine is his blood. But as many of us know, there is one more picture of the body of Christ in the New Testament. And that is the church. Listen to what Paul says very plainly in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. And so there's these two pictures in the New Testament. One, where the body of Christ is Jesus, and we partake of his body spiritually when we eat the bread and the wine. But then also the body of Christ is the church, and we are each individual members of his body. And so Paul, in two chapters earlier from this, takes both of those ideas and just weaves them all together. Listen to what he says in uh, chapter 10. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Now that word there translated participation, that's the Greek word koinonia, and it can be translated fellowship. So when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we do so in fellowship with each other, and with God in Christ. So this meal is not only a sign and a seal of our union with Christ through faith, it's not only a meal that strengthens and nourishes our faith, it is a meal that binds us and unites us together as a community in Christ. And so when we come together to eat this meal, we're proclaiming together as a community that we as individuals and we as a community believe the promises of the gospel, 
that we are justified by God's free, free grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus, that we are being sanctified by God's free grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Therefore, when we share in this meal together, we are saying to ourselves, to each other, and to the watching world that we share our beliefs and our behaviors, we share our life and doctrine because we share in Christ because we are the body of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we admit that these, these realities are, are something that we can apprehend, but it's difficult to fully comprehend them. Yet we're grateful for them, Father. We're grateful that you've given us something real and tangible that we can actually taste that we can actually take into our physical bodies, that points to something deeply spiritual, that points to this faith that we have where we trust in you and you alone, that you will grant us eternal life, that it, that it seals the promises that you offer us in the gospel to us, it, it makes them real and authentic to our soul, and that it nourishes us in our faith, which ebbs and flows. Sometimes it feels weak, sometimes it feels strong, and we need a meal to feed us, to nourish our faith. And then, Father, it binds us together as a community. And we proclaim to each other, to ourselves, and to the watching world that we are part of your church. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.